Welcome to School Choice Report, where we explore everything about one of the most important education topics. I'm your host, David Hardy. In this podcast, we'll be talking to experts, educators, and parents to get a deep dive into the world of school choice. Whether you're an advocate, skeptic, or just curious, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and let's get started with the conversation. Hello and welcome to the School Choice Report. I'm your host, David Hardy. Today, our guest is Associate Professor of Education for our sinus, Mr. John Spencer. John Spencer believes schooling ought to be thought-provoking, life-changing, and relevant to the world beyond school. In his classrooms, he has worked to model that the kind of collaborative, intellectually engaging approaches to teaching and learning that he hopes his students will foster in their own careers. Through Professor Spencer's research of the history of education, he offered In the Crossfire, Marcus Foster and the Troubled History of American School Reform, which is both a biography of an African-American school leader and a history of American school reform since the 40s. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast, and I'm looking forward to your insights, John. Great to be with you, David. All right. Well, I got to say, first of all, I'm going to give a plug to Ursinus because from my very first class at Boys Latin, I've sent people to Ursinus and I like the school. I like what they've done. I like the fact that our guys finished there. <laughs> That's important. And uh, I just, yep. and I got a chance to speak at your school last year or earlier this year. And I got to tell you, I thought the students were very, very open to ideas and very engaging. And I, I you know, it's not what people kind of tell you to expect on a college campus. It wasn't they weren't didn't come in with one side and one side only. They were open. And I, I thought that was very impressive. Yeah, well, that's wonderful to hear those impressions. Uh, you know, we're a liberal arts college and we really try to promote deep thinking, critical thinking, open-mindedness. And and uh, so that's that's wonderful to hear. The first essay I read in my freshman year college was by William James, and it was about the purpose of a liberal education, a liberal arts education. And the purpose was so that you can tell who is an honest man. <laughs> so. Yeah, that sometimes that's described as having a crap detector. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you need one these days. Yeah. yeah. So listen, John, uh, I want to start by discussing your research, and it's available online at philadelphiaencyclopedia.org. It's about the history of public high schools in and around Philadelphia. It's fascinating to learn that. that Greater Philadelphia has been notable in the development of secondary education in the United States. I didn't know that. I lived there all my life. So tell us a little bit about that. Okay, sure. This was a, a piece that I did some years ago. I was asked by a, a colleague in the history of education from Temple, Bill Cutler, great historian there, to develop a piece on the history of high schools in greater Philadelphia. So that's not just the city, but the suburbs and the, and the region. And it was a really interesting project for me. Uh, I I actually learned a lot because it wasn't exactly my primary area of of research. But you know, one of the things that's notable is Philadelphia had one of the the earliest public high schools in the country, very notable high school, which is Central High School. 
And that was founded as far back as 1838. And that was part of the movement to create public education in the United States. They were called, it's called the common school movement. And the idea was tax supported schools that all the citizens contribute to. And that was our notion of public schools developing. And and Central was important in that history. You know, fast forwarding uh, another kind of notable part of the history that I was really interested in was the early 20th century is basically when high school became a mass institution. A lot of people don't realize hardly anyone went to high school before that, or at least, you know, minorities of, of people, not, not too many. It just, we think of education as being so central and so crucial in people's lives today, but it really wasn't in the 19th century. The economy was different. There were, you know, most people were working in jobs that did not require, you know, high school education necessarily. So, but but that changed in the early 20th century and we really got the modern mass attended high school and Philadelphia built a lot of these these big school buildings that you know are still around i just drove past two or three of them today cuz i needed to take my son to the dentist <laughs> and okay. we, we were driving through west philadelphia and going past oh, okay. the, the big west philadelphia high building and overbrook high overbrook and right all, all those big buildings they were, they were built in that era and you know it was a period of intense immigration into the united states and so really those buildings were part of this expansion of secondary education to try and accommodate lots and lots of immigrants and mm-hmm. you know, they were referred to disparagingly at the time as hordes, you know, the hordes uh-huh. are coming in and yes. we, we need, yes. to, oh, what are we going to do? You know, so expand education, expand high school. And you've got something called the comprehensive high school, which the idea of it, you know, but before, before this time, high schools were pretty academic, you know, they were Latin and Greek and, and, you know, mathematics was, was, that was a new thing eventually, <laughs> you know, so, but, but, but it was very academic curriculum through the 19th century. And in the early 20th century, you get the rise of a more a kind of separate tracks in the curriculum. So academics was really just one track and you had manual tracks and you had clerical tracks and, and, you know, this, this really set up a theme that I, I found in the research, and it's in other areas of my research too, which is the tension between we have the ideal of of public education of being a kind of democratizing institution that's a, a, available to all Americans, and then we have the reality of very unequal experiences. And you see that from the very start, really, not many people had access to Central High School, and. And, um, you know, then in the in the 20s, people had more access to high schools, but they didn't have access to the same kind of learning and the same kind of curriculum. And that theme persisted even after uh, the 40s, which is more my area of expertise. And, you know, the cities went into decline and the suburbs exploded with growth. And, and so then you get that inequality between cities and suburbs. So that was a, a big kind of theme in that research. Well, Central, you know, Central now is a selective admission school. Did it start out that way? Um, it it wasn't. I don't know if it was had a an explicit 
selective admissions policy, but as a practical matter, it just, it, it, you know, it was, it was the only game in town and, and not too many people could, could go. And, you know, it was really, it was really aimed at, you know, this was sort of the rise of early industrialization and urbanization in the 1830s and 40s. And so you had these kind of shopkeepers and merchants and people in Philadelphia who were, you know, there's a there's a leading book on Central by a, a sociologist and historian named David Labory. And it's a good book if you want to learn, you know, a lot more about Central. But I'm going to, go to, I'm going to look at that. Yeah. yeah, he argues that that they were these these uh, kind of people who were kind of like a an emerging middle class kind of commercial class in Philadelphia were were frankly nervous that their their sons would not have it as well as they did and they they were thinking well this education might actually become more important and right and so you know it was really it was aimed you know at that type of clientele but you know it's a very small slice of philadelphians who who were able to go and it was the only real school like that well you write you write about the rise of public education and with that the deterioration of public education knowing what we know now about the philadelphia school district and the problems they have it's hard to believe that at one time public high schools built in philadelphia were referred to as cathedrals of learning and massive, ornate, decorated structures symbolize the city's expanded commitment to secondary education. And like you just mentioned, West Philadelphia High School, students pass through castle-like entrances that would inspire them with stone carvings of scholarly equipment, such as books and pens. It sounds like we started out to inspire and educate students. What happened? Because I don't think people think about that at West Philly right now. Yeah, that's a... That's a long and you know involved history, but I would say that really a, a big thing that happened was that the economy changed and the situation of cities changed. So you know from the 1830s through the 1920s, you know, as a period of especially the period in the at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century, intense urbanization and economic development. And the cities were really the engines of growth and opportunity. I mean, Detroit is the most dramatic example. What do you, you know, people think of when they hear Detroit, you know, in the late 20th century, it wasn't good things that they were thinking when, when they heard Detroit, they thought about a place with a lot of problems. And well, Detroit in the early 20th century, of course, with the rise of the automobile industry, I mean, things were really really happening there. And it was so, you know, the cities were were thriving. And of course, they were experiencing an influx of population in the form of immigrants, also people coming from the countryside, moving to cities. So they were the they were the places where it was all happening. So as a result, they were also kind of on the cutting edge of education, because they were on the cutting edge of everything. And, and they, you know, so they they built these big buildings that we were that you were talking about. And, and, you know, it was a time of big kind of plans and, and gestures. But, you know, the period after starting in, you know, the 40s and, and then the post-war era is, you know, became known as the urban crisis. You know, it was this kind of perfect storm of 
you know, deindustrialization, manufacturing jobs left and, and went elsewhere. You had, you know, it was there's a strong racial dimension of, of demographic change where, you know, white people were moving out of the city and into the suburbs and black Southerners were moving in who, um, you know, were looking for opportunity just as the opportunity was kind of evaporating and they were closed out of the suburbs also. And and so, you know, the cities became places of, of struggle and problem and strife. And, you know, the schools aren't immune from that. They they reflect that. So I that's one theme I would emphasize that's big from the history of education is that people often assume that schools are more powerful than they are. You know, they're important. They're very important. And they're especially important to families and to individuals, you know, who experience them. But as a social institution, they they reflect the society as much as they shape it. And in the period since World War II, they reflected the larger decline of the cities. And it's been a tough it's been a tough situation for them. You know, there's, I mentioned, you know, race. I mean, race and racism has been a tremendous part of this story as well. I mean, the, the cathedrals of learning, the, those big buildings I was driving past earlier today, you know, they're very impressive. They were, they were really meant to, uh, it was meant to Americanize the immigrants, like a term that was used, you know, and they were supposed to, the buildings were, as you quoted, they were supposed to be impressive and kind of make immigrants, you know, feel more American. But, you know, really what, what made it for the immigrants was in the end was not schools as much as, you know, the new deal and, and sort of the economic turnaround of world war two, the GI bill, and all of these factors that helped build a new expanded middle class that then moved out to the suburbs. And, and so, you know, fast forward past World War II, you know, African-Americans were excluded from uh, programs, uh, some of those programs, and, you know, they weren't able to uh, take part in that transfer of, of government programs and government wealth. Well, part of, part of what I see, especially I I, I went to school in in the, 50s and 60s. And what I saw in in urban Philadelphia was as the schools become more and more minority, programming becomes less and less academic. And there were two things going on. And and the second part kind of doomed the first first part. It moved up there. These people moved up to Philadelphia and Detroit and New York and cities like that for opportunity. And the schools, when they got to the schools, the schools actually gave them less opportunity than was given to the kids before them. And that's that seems to me to be the, a, a real big part of this whole history. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's kind of what I was referring to before with, you know, the period earlier in the 20s with and of course there was, you know, Black Southerners were migrating as in the Great Migration in that era as well, but there were immigrants as well. And, you know, as more more of these kids came into schools, the schools became less academic. And it was, you know, in the name of meeting people's needs. But really what it was doing was um, holding low academic expectations of lots of kids. And that carried it carried into the period you talked about after the war. And 
And really, it's since the 80s that that there's been an effort to, you know, with the standards movement and other other things, an effort to say, no, you know, everyone should be get a good academic education and college should be something that everyone can shoot for. And that's a really ambitious goal that we haven't really had before. Right. Right. We seem interested, very interested in the history of education and written about school reform. How would you define school reform? Well, just, I guess, most broadly, it's just really an effort to change and improve schools and schooling. It's all kinds of programs and efforts to do that. Can you give me an example of a positive school reform or a negative school reform? Uh, So, I mean, one big thing I think about with school reform is, you know, when I was coming into education in the 1980s, you know, one of my mentors and like a reform movement that I became part of essentially was called the Coalition of Essential Schools. And a guy named Theodore Sizer really tried to reform high school in America. He took a big, ambitious swing at it. Ted Sizer, he published a book called Horace's Compromise, uh, which he went around and sat in high schools all over the country and took a lot of notes and studied the way things were being done. And he concluded that high schools were dull places academically and were not really pushing students academically. It was all about kind of social life and other things, but it, it was not really rigorous. Students were not engaged. Everyone was just memorizing stuff and spitting it back on tests and not really learning to think. And so his biggest expression was students should learn to use their minds well. And it wasn't just a narrow academic idea. It was open to all kinds of ways that you should engage students and students should really uh, do things rather than just be talked at. And so, you know, there was really an effort to there to reform what teaching and learning are like in schools. And that was very influential for me as I became a teacher. I wanted to teach like that. I wanted to get my, st- he, he used to say that teaching should be more like coaching. The coach doesn't play the game for the players. The coach guides them, but the players play. And he thought that the, the students should do things and the teacher should be more like a coach, which I've always thought kind of an underrated way of thinking about teaching. Yeah. So, so that was positive, I thought. A lot of people say today's problems in education are a result of yesterday's school reforms. What would you say to that? I I guess in most ways, I would say, no, the problems today aren't aren't a problem with the past reforms. And and again, I would I would I would emphasize the economic piece that I was talking about and 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 racism. Those are the and and culture for that matter. I mean, the role now of mass media, social media, the level of kind of distraction for for students away from academics. Those are big cultural, social, economic forces that I think continue to shape the problems. But I guess you know, in one way, I think I wouldn't call this a purely negative reform, but. It's sort of a, a mixed bag. Is I think the biggest reform of our era is the standardized the standards movement and the you know mm-hmm. no child left behind and the movement to hold schools accountable for the academic achievement of students. You know I I, I wrote a book about Marcus Foster as you mentioned and and I, I argued mm-hmm. in that book that 
that that impulse to hold schools accountable was not just a Republican George W. Bush, Texas thing. It, it came out of the civil rights era. It came out of black, educators. Yeah, black, <laughs> yeah. black yep. educators were demanding more of the schools and not wanting excuses about why everything was impossible. And and so I think that's been valuable. But I think the way No Child Left Behind did it and the way the standard standards movement did it, you know, it really did. Uh, up the 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 power of standardized testing in ways that can be harmful. You know, I think it's important to try and see what kids are learning. And but, uh, you know, there was a real top down. Everyone's telling telling teachers and schools what to do from far away. You're going to, you know, pass mm-hmm. these tests. And, and so you just you kind of take important decisions away from the teachers and from the schools. You you and you make it all about tests that someone else wrote somewhere else, and it's not about you know what you're doing in your in your school. So I think that's been a, a mixed thing, and I think it still kind of casts a little bit of a shadow in some ways over a lot of schools and and learning. Well, when you look when you see the uh, the school reform spectrum, where does school choice sit on that spectrum? Yeah, choice is a, obviously a really important reform also, charter schools, school choice. I think that they have been, uh, it's complicated. You know, I think there's a lot of different forms that this takes, there's a lot of mm-hmm. different kinds of charter schools. You know, I I have some mixed feelings about school choice. I know you're a big advocate and, and you know, I have a a positive view of many aspects of school choice, especially the way that it allows uh, certainly parent choice and uh, for, for parents who may not have it, because the fact is, as we all know, more affluent parents do have choices. They, they, they move, they go somewhere where they like the schools and that's a choice that not everyone has. And so, you know, I appreciate the, the effort to give parents more choices. I also appreciate the way that it allows diversity in schools, the idiosyncrasy, different kinds of schools. So like what you did at Boys Latin, which by the way, I just respect tremendously that you had a very different kind of school there. And it kind of shows, you know, not all schools need to look exactly the same or have exactly the same focus to be a good school. And, in, and actually this was a big sizer thing, you know, big part of his movement was schools should have autonomy to shape their own destiny, that it was the people at the school who knew best what the school needed and they should be able to make it their school. Like Deborah Meyer in, in Harlem was another one of these figures who they create schools that are just really distinctive and really their own school. And, you know, I think that's powerful. Well, you know, I I think about the the comprehensive high school, like the high school I went to, the same way I think about those old department stores that used to be on Market Street, Gimbel's and Lip Brothers, and Snellenberger's, uh, Wanamaker's. These you could go in those stores and they had yep. everything. Yep. <laughs> they got everything in those stores, and and they were all on the same street in the same like five block radius. And they were all filled. And in the 50s, that's how people shopped. But with the internet and malls and all kind of, you know, all the online shop, 
it's different now. You can't go back to that. You can't, you could, you could build a place down on Market Street to do that. You won't get people to come there. You can't get enough people to come there. And, and it's, and the thing is, is that schools are like retail. You know, it's not mass marketing. You got everybody who comes in comes for a different reason. You got to figure out the reason and why they should be there. And, and, that's part I don't think we want to embrace enough. I think we want to we're worried about the big system holding the big system together when I'm not sure that that should be our objective. You know, it's funny you say the the uh the department store because actually one of the books that came out of Sizer's reform effort was called The Shopping Mall High School. And it com- it compared the comprehensive high school to a shopping mall where there was all the shops were there. And but not everyone was going to shop at the same one. So it was great because the academic shop is over here and the uh, clerical training shop is over here and you can do different things. And then the criticism of that, you know, was so it, that what held it all together, you, you know, you wanted to have some kind of common experience. I mean, to go back to what the public schools were called when they were founded, they were called common schools. Common schools, right. People had things in common. And so that's the side of choice and and charter schools that concerns me a little bit. I don't think there's any perfect answer. I think it's a tension. You know, the tension is between people having freedom and choice to do what they want, to shape what they want, might be different from other people. And at the same time, there is an ideal of public education that that there will be something in common. And above all, there will be some st- level of quality that is in common. And, you know, the, the challenges with with charters is that, you know, the debate that we have about, you know, if 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 charters and, and choice schools are attracting people who are, you know, struggling with no choices, but they're a little better informed and they're, they're, they're motivated to find something, you know, the, the kids who have even higher needs and have less support and, and less advocacy from parents to find choices, you know, if they get all left behind in a shrunken, you know, system that kind of concentrates them there, you know, then you have a real two tiered thing. So I, you know, I think th- when choice, when you look at the picture of the whole spectrum of all schools and all kids, I would love to see a way that choice can help everyone have real choices rather than your rationing choices. And we see the lottery and the ping, ping pong ball. Yeah, see, for I don't like that. Yeah, I think that's horrible. I think that's horrible. I, you know, I see these these shows about that. Where they have this, they follow the family and get this little kid dressed up in their Sunday best clothes and ride downtown and sit in this big room. And all the way there, the parent is saying, you got to have this or you won't have a future. And then they don't get picked. And, you know, why don't they just hit them upside the head with a baseball bat? That is just cruel. It's cruel. And, and it seems to me it, it, that that seems to be a result of trying to parse out choice as opposed to opening up choice because I think there should be schools for all kinds of students. I started out this thing. I started out in education at a school for at-risk kids and and kids who were truant, dropped out, permanently expelled from public schools, kids who hated school. And we had them and, and, and that was our market. Okay. 
And we, you know, we took that as our market. We weren't looking for the kid that could get into Harvard on the first one. You know, we're looking for the kid who's walking around the streets, not doing anything in the middle of the day. Hey, come in here and get an education. And that was a market, you know, and, and there was, I, I always felt there was honor and dignity in that work as much as any place else. But now that doesn't seem to be the case. And I don't know what happened. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's great that you saw that as a market and catered to that. And, um, you know, I, I think that it varies, you know, from from school to school, from, mm-hmm. from charter to charter, you know, choice school to choice school. So but, yeah, I, I, I think that, you know, the problem with the thing, the scenario you were describing of going down and sitting in the big room and the lottery result comes in, you know, there just aren't enough choices are, aren't enough schools and again i would say the the bigger problem is is not in what the leadership of a school district is doing or not doing i you know or what the the choice people are doing or not doing but it's 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 more in we have not invested as a society in all children you know that let's face it that's that's again back to the larger structural economic stuff in the early 20th century, they built those big so-called cathedral of learning, cathedrals of learning, because they had a, a real ambitious project to turn all of these immigrants into Americans. And they spent money on it and built these buildings and, and expanded education. And there's been unequal expansion since World War II. And it's really, the, you know, the cities that have that have suffered the most. And they're they're not they're not invested in the same way and they don't have the tax base and the and the families the 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 economic and cultural resources that the families have who are more affluent i mean that dwarfs spending on on schooling that's the all of the advantages that affluent kids have from the second they're born and you know to sort of compete with that you you would have to really invest and really take it seriously and we really haven't taken it that seriously for for all students and so we're people are left kind of you know rearranging the chairs and you know kind of coming up with the best configuration they can within those constraints but as a society we just haven't stepped up that's my view anyway well john this has been a real pleasure speaking with you i i I hope we can get a chance to get you back again because this has been (laughs) it's been amazing yeah i i'm honored to be on with you david i again i really appreciate and respect all your work in education. You're the, you're the real deal. So thanks. Well, well, thank you. And so are you. That's it for today's episode of School Choice Report. I hope you found the conversation enlightening and informative. If you have any feedback, questions, or suggestions for future episodes, please reach out to us at schoolchoicereport.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show wherever you listen to podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, this is David Hardy signing off. Thanks for tuning in.